US military, which has infamously used other location data to target drone strikes, is purchasing access to sensitive data. Many of the users of apps involved in the data supply chain are Muslim, which is notable considering that the United States has waged a decades-long war on predominantly Muslim terror groups in the Middle East and has killed hundreds of thousands of civilians during its military operations. Motherboard does not know of any specific operations in which this type of app-based location data has been used by the US military. Hello friends and enemies, it's episode 44 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And uh, we've got a really great episode um, going on today. Uh, We're joined by... Uh, Salome uh, Filyun, who is a joint research fellow in the NYU School of Law and Cornell Tech Digital Life Initiative. And, and Salome is joining us to talk about a really important issue that we've touched on in other episodes and, and kind of riffed on, but something that we really need to focus more intently on, which is the data governance and, and really taking a kind of uh, a law and policy approach to this question of democratic data governance, which is something that Salome is uh, right now. So, I I mean, like I've read so much stuff on the politics of data, data governance, social theory and data, blah, 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 like reading so much of this stuff. And then I came across Salome's article. She recently posted called Democratic Data, a relational theory for data governance. And it was just like, this lightning strike. Uh, uh, it was so revelatory. I thought it was so clear uh, and, and really mapped out the issue in such a great way while also providing this like positive way forward for what democratic data governance must look like. And I was like, I need to talk to Salome about this more. We need to bring this to the people. Uh, we need to have a better conversation and a more in-depth conversation about this. So Salome, thank you for coming on TMK uh, for that purpose. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm uh, excited to be here. Maybe we can just start off by setting up that question of just like, what is data governance? Uh, and, and why is it something that we should care about? The, like, why should we care about how we govern data? Don't the corporations already have this well under control? <laughs> Yeah, well, it's kind of a big, open, interesting question. What is data governance? Um, Yeah, I mean, I think why should we care is a really also really interesting way into the problem. Because on the one hand, you might think like, oh, we should care about all the technologies that are trained on the data. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, anyone who um, spends any time in this space knows that all of those technologies are really only as good as the data that they're trained on. Um, And I really think about data as the part of the process where, you know, us, the masses, really have input into these systems. You know, the information that we go give off as we live our lives and, you know, are, are social online um, is the raw input kind of, quote unquote, into a lot of these systems. And so data governance, you know, really is the legal regime. And I'm a legal scholar, of course, so I think of all of this in terms of the legal regimes. Data governance is the legal regime that negotiates the government, the, that governs the relationship between us and all of these technology companies that, you know, are driven to suck up all of the data they can about us and the way that we relate to one another in order to build their products. So I think of it as a really potent place to kind of um, 
think through what our relationship to one another, what our relationship um, to these technology companies is, and what it might be. Um, In terms of why we should care, again, I think that data is sort of the raw input point. It's the um, sort of input point of production um, where we kind of have a stake in how these technologies are formed. And now often that stake is not one that we have any real control over. Um, But it is the point at which kind of the human element and the social element gets like sucked up and, you know, rendered Mm. into technical systems. I like this idea of of like understanding data in terms of, right, it is the human and social element that, that, as you say, is getting sucked into these technologies, right? Because I mean, that in a lot of ways, and I I think you do a great job in the essay of of showing that it's it's not only that data is interested, or or rather these these kind of like really powerful tech companies are interested um, in the ways that it like, like we are individually crunched into the form of data. But I I think right off the bat, like right at the beginning of your argument, you kind of set up this distinction between, you know, these individual level insights, right, where it's like, you know, and I, I think this is how it's often framed, right, that like, Google or Facebook or whoever is, uh, you know, they, they, they are, by collecting data, personal data about you, they are somehow interested in like spying on you as an individual, right? Like they're pressing their face against against the window into your bedroom. Uh, you know, they're 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 in your wallet. They know what you spend, what you buy, right? Like, like they as if they're somehow interested in really focusing on individual people. But you argue, I think rightfully so, um, that the, the the primary aim here is more so to derive these as you put it, population level insights from data subjects, which I think is a really nice way of, 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 of breaking um, something that we'll get even further into, which is this like inherent individualism that a lot of understanding of data has, which, you know, it's understandable, right? Like we want to we want to relate things on an individual level. Um, we also feel like we are like somehow personally being spied on, um, that it's like this individual level thing. But in reality, I mean, just like the, the, the scale of the data collection, the scale of these companies, um, the scale of insights that and, and value that they're trying to derive and extract really sits at a population level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, again, I think that the important thing for me about distinguishing between this idea of the individual level insights versus population level insights is like exactly this misconception that it breeds that these companies care about you, like they have this creepy obsessive need to know about you, which they do, but not about like me, Salome. It's not like Google cares about what Salome wants and like might be interested in buying next. Like, no, they're interested in like developing population level categories like millennial, like cat owner, like, you know, woman, and like thinking about what like millennial cat owner women might want to get next. And like the reason it's important to distinguish that is, you know, again, for me as a legal scholar, like it matters to know that they don't actually care about you because thinking that they do really like shapes and constrains the way that we articulate what kind of legal interest is implicated, the way that we articulate what kind of harm is being done, and then the way that we try to like address that harm with like 
a set of individual rights or like a set of individual controls. It's like, no, you know, what they're really interested in is like developing and curating population level kind of behavioral patterns um, that, of course, then are, are interpolated back onto individuals. But yeah, I mean, I think it's really important to distinguish that. Um, and, you know, the law has a way of kind of making people think that, you know, the individual is sort of needs to be be brought to the forefront. But that kind of is a misnomer here. We're not dealing with like sort of the rules of interpersonal relations where like, yes, it's creepy if my neighbor looks into my window. What we're really governing here as a legal project are um, large scale economic production. (laughs) And that's just like a different game. You know, that's a different legal challenge. You know, one thing in your work that you talk a a bit about is how this sort of uh, and obsession over the individual has resulted in proposals of of a few camps of uh, reforms that um, in their own ways try to solve the problem of, all right, who's, you know, datafying people um, and what do we like about it and what do we not like about it? But they don't end up addressing the core problem because their their concern is with the individual uh, versus population. Would you, I think, you know, would you be able to speak a bit to or flesh out this sort of, the, the sort of schools of reforms? I, you know, I think you conceptualize them as uh, proprietarian um, and dignitarian uh, reforms that kind of like dictate the way in which people are going to think about I right, should data what the, is the relationship you should have with data that's generated about you um, and whether or not you can come in and stop that data from being generated or be compensated it being generated or whether it should be thought of as property or as labor and all these or- other sort of ways of thinking through data or and, you know, and how we'll govern it um, that I guess, kind of just reify the status quo on a deeper level. So I was actually, um, Ben Tarnoff quote tweeted uh, a, a section from Gavin Mueller's new book, which looks great and I haven't read it yet. I think it's not technically out yet, so I feel okay about that. Um, <laughs> really highlighting this idea that like a lot of people's cr- critique of technology is sort of in this language of romantic humanism, that we're losing some essential innate humanistic feature, um, you know, sort of the natural human in a lot of this technology and, you know, sort of the limits of that vision. That's all well and good, but you have a real temptation if you kind of feel like we just need to get back to the natural, you don't want to be rendered legible by any system into being either kind of libertarian or even worse, almost sort of like Burkean (laughs) in your view of the world. So you have that on the one hand, you know, I think this sense, and I kind of would sort of associate Zuboff's critique um, very much with this, like we're losing our true humanity on the one hand. On the other hand, you have the like very neoliberal, like, oh, we just need to like inter internalize the externalities and like make the rights clear and like then the market will take care of the problem. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And it's sort of those two responses that I think of as on the one hand, the dignitarian response and on the other hand, the propertarian response. So the propertarian response is pretty neoliberal. It's saying we need to formalize the property rights that people have in data, which is like, you know, currently we live in data feudalism and we, we have, we're the serfs that are laboring for free for the Lords. And if we just give the serfs property rights, (laughs) we will solve all of the problems of data feudalism, which like, didn't solve the problems of feudalism. <laughs> just <laughs> capitalism. So I don't understand why we would, sorry, I don't understand why we would just reinvent that wheel. We already know. Now we have a set of new legal institutions that we have, you know, developed over the course of the 20th century to do like responses to capitalism. So I don't understand why we're returning to these, these 
prop, basic property tools to solve problems of feudalism in, in digital settings. Um, right. it, but that's it, kind of the proprietarian like, response. It's like the problem of digital capitalism or data capitalism is that it's not enough capitalism. Right? Yes. <laughs> we need There's more this capitalism in, in this system. It's not capitalist enough. It's like the weird insomnia of just thinking like, you know, you like rediscover the problem and you just keep applying the same solutions that are the reason that we're in the crisis that we're in to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think of that kind of, um, not to mince words, but like, which clearly I haven't been, um, that's kind of the proprietarian response. It's just like, oh, we have a horrible extractive system. What if we just give everyone an alienable right to their data? What could possibly go wrong? People have never once been exploited by giving an alienable right to their labor. <laughs> like, you know. Maybe we can talk about um, some of the people before we get on to the dignitarians. Uh, we can yeah. talk about some of the people that hold these proprietarian viewpoints. Like uh, for me, like the the first person that comes to mind, and I feel like he's been kind of forgotten, but um, old Jaron Lanier, who yeah. uh, like in, in you know. In his book, Who Owns the Future, right? Like, Jaron Lanier is a really interesting character anyways and someone that we've never talked about on TMK, but I feel like we need to, like, do a, a deep dive into into the, into him as a, as a person. Because yeah. he, he, he was, like, you know, one of the original creators around, like, virtual reality. Um, I still think he works for Microsoft in some, in some capacity. Uh, but has also, good. like... Who doesn't? <laughs> and, and, and also is uh, also a white guy with dreads who plays like the didgeridoo um, and he's <laughs> yeah. a musician. Um, also has carved out this like niche for himself as like a as a tech critic, right? Like Jeremy just threw in the chat, Jaron Lanier sold me mushrooms at Coachella in 2004, which is exactly right. That's right? so right. That's exactly right. And, Every and college like, town has a dude like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, they do. <laughs> and and he's like carved out this niche for himself as a as a tech critic. But yeah, like in his book Who Owns the Future, he laid out this immensely complex system uh for like micro compensation for data rights, right? Like like so the idea is that like everyone's everyone has property rights in their data and then they can bring that data um, to auction and sell it themselves to companies and get like these micro payments in return for for selling their data. In addition to I mean, that is essentially how like the ad tech auctions work right now. And the idea is that we need the the basic idea is that we just need to cut out the middlemen of advertisers and everyone else, everyone just individually brings their own wares to market. It is this like very romanticized view of capitalism as a as a bazaar, bazaar in the bazaar sense, but also a bazaar in a market sense, right? That like you are somehow like a like you're a farmer and you're bringing your chicken and your cows to market. Market, um, and you're setting up your stall and you're saying, who wants to buy my data? Um, oh, Google, come on over, buy my data. Facebook, come on over, buy my data. Like, I think it's no accident that he has this view, this romantic view of an ideal capitalism that is essentially a farmer's market. Can you talk a little bit about that? But also th- that I did, didn't live and die with him. Um, there's also other people who have this proprietarian viewpoint of data. 
most prominently right now, Adam, uh, sorry, Andrew Yang. Um, right. Sorry, right. I, Adam Smith was on the brain, but Andrew Yang <laughs> is like running for mayor right now. So Hasn't, hasn't AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez yeah. also uh, said yeah. that like we need to have so, this kind of model? Yeah. And so this is why I think like, you know, I mean, obviously everyone is obsessed with what they study, but like, this is why data governance matters. Well, not just data governance matters, but like conceptually pinning down and articulating like why data extraction is exploitative and what should be done about it is important because otherwise people just who are busy and are thinking about a thousand other policy positions, like grab onto the thing, uh, the thing du jour. So, you know, I, I don't take AOC to be like a neoliberal, but I take her to say like, oh yeah, people should get, it is being produced for free. Like, shouldn't people get paid for it? And like not thinking further than that. But the Adam Smith farmer's market view of Jaron Lanier, um, just there are like a thousand and one reasons why that doesn't make sense to me. Like, I think there are like, I am practically and empirically skeptical that it will in fact cash out that way based on, you know, just 300 years of data on what actually what capitalist market exchange looks like, in fact. Um, um, (laughs) But I also kind of feel like why, (laughs) why return to these ideas that we have every reason to believe won't work, um, won't work practically, won't achieve justice. Look, I mean, if you we can have a conversation about like, oh, okay, maybe your theory of exploitation is just very different from mine, Um, then that's okay, you know, we can have that debate. But I think the problem right now is that, and we can get into it when we talk about the dignitarian one, I think the problem right now is that there's an intuitive redistributive agenda to something like people should get paid for their data that I think is being implicitly articulated in that claim. The problem is that you're not actually going to get meaningful redistribution from that claim. So if what you're interested in is redistribution, then yes, I'm on your team and we can talk about some alternatives that aren't crap, (laughs) which is what data's property is. Um, (laughs) But if you're just actually like, no, I want to live in Adam Smith land, then I'm like, okay, cool. We have a very different political agenda. And, you know, now we're clear on that. (laughs) I think there are still residues also of that, or not residue, but that in the general public, this sort of attitude takes hold and like even the conception of how, you know, if something is free, then you are the product. Like that being uh, a, a flattening of what's going on where, yeah, you know, like people individually are not the product there, but there's the focus on the individual and losing sight of like, okay, well, actually like, you know, for some companies, it's just that you may help them train a product that they are then offering, you know, elsewhere, right? Or that the population helps train a product that they're offering elsewhere. And so it doesn't make sense to say it's free and you're the product. It's more like you're, you're buying, you're buying a product anyway, but it's also that a service or a good that's you know more profitable in some other ways being offered to another business or to the, to the government. But like those sort of phrases, those sorts of ideas, as you were talking about earlier, they just narrow the confines of what we're thinking about and how we're thinking of data and who benefits from it. You know, who has the legal right to benefit from it, uh, who, you know, also gets to, you know, perpetrate harm or escape scrutiny because of the harm that's caused or what even gets what harm even gets thought of you know like what is Mm -hmm. what do we decide is a social harm or a negative consequence or an externality versus like what is just embedded as like the cost of having 
data, you know, or digital technologies. Mm. Right, right. In addition to this, like, property relation in data, I think you also pinpoint something that has, that was for a while a pretty common understanding of data within, like, cultural economy and kind of media studies, which was that like data is uh, a form of labor, right? It's a form of free labor. Um, and I, I think implicitly in that as well is this idea that like, oh, the problem is, is that if we understand data, like all of the, all of the quote unquote work that I'm doing on Facebook or on Twitter or on Google, um, which then they like, which feeds into them, uh, yeah, training these these algorithms and these AI systems that they're using to extract surplus value, right? Like the problem there is that I'm doing free work um, in the form of data and, and it exists outside of a wage relation. And so we need to bring a wage relation in, into data, right? So like, it's not only these kind of like neoliberal economists who are thinking about this as well, but it was for a while, I, I think this viewpoint has started falling off for good reason, but it was for a while, even the like cultural studies and media studies, um, kind of like leftist scholars who were like, uh, you know, coming out of these viewpoints from like autonomous Marxism, right? That like the problem here is that like, uh, we're doing all this free work. It, it's laying outside of a wage relation, which, which yeah, goes back to this idea it's actually a form of feudalism um, because of that. And we need to bring it somehow into capitalism. I start losing the thread on the argument after, after you start going to the logical conclusions there. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of think of there are like, there's like a wedding cake of interlocutors that you're dealing with when you deal with these claims. And it's like, do I like not agree with your analysis nor your political aims? Do I like, agree with your political aims, but not your analysis, like, you know, right. like a winnowing, um, that kind of level of interlocutor. I think it's like, I think I, I agree that the social relation that is currently structured between like data producers and data collectors is an, a coercive one. <laughs> and I think it's a, like a, a, an unjust one. Um, I'm just not sure that it's a labor relation. Um, and I'm just not sure, again, speaking as a legal scholar, that in order to address the injustice of that relation requires uh, formalizing it as a wage relation. So mm. to take the former first, um, you know, I, I guess I'm of, of the Marxist school that thinks that part of the reason that labor relations are unjust is that they are, you know, um, forcing people to spend a lot of time, their limited time on this world, doing activities that are profoundly alienating to them and just like immiserating um, in order to not starve. <laughs> um, you know, there's like, ex like visceral exploitation <laughs> in the wage relationship. Um, and there's a like actual unfreedom in terms of how you spend your time in that relation. And neither of those things are really true about how information data is created. It's designed to happen as like seamlessly as possible. Like I can be engaged in like deeply alienating labor, or I can be engaged in like some incredibly pleasurable, exchange with a dear friend online and both of those activities are could be subject to data extraction mm -hmm. um you know i think it's it's like meant to feel as seamless or invisible as possible there's no kind of like visceral exploitation kind of happening there nor is my time being stolen from me by a capitalist in the production of data so i think that those sorts of 
features kind of just mean that it there's still unjust enrichment happening, there's exploitation happening here, but it doesn't take the flavor of a of a labor um, relation to me. Um, right is kind of where and I would then, depart from 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 those folks. <laughs> yeah, I, I I mean I think that is I think that is dead on. And you say in your essay as well, um, quote, this translates into a legal reform agenda to change the legal code being applied to data assets, but not to reject the concept of data as an asset. Right. So the idea here is that, yeah, the, the problem with data assets is that they are not assets enough, uh, rather than what yeah. we ought to be doing, which is rejecting that very notion at all, that they are somehow, um, that they are assets. And I, I think that leads us quite nicely into um, the dignitarian response here. So could you, uh, you know, just as a point of, of clarification, right, like the proprietarians, you argue, treat data as object-like, right? They, they conceive mm-hmm. of it as an object, as, as property, or it ought to be an object, it ought to be property. Whereas you're saying the, the dignitarians conceive of data as person-like, you know, as this extension of the data subject's very selfhood. Um, could, could you lay out a little bit about what and who are the dignitarians? I'll start maybe with who. So I, I kind of, um, when I'm writing about dignitarians, t- to be honest, I really am, I think I think of myself as like writing um, in, comp- well, sh- she doesn't know who I am and it says I'm insignificant to her, but I'm writing it about Shoshana Zuboff. Friend of the show. Friend of the show. Friend of the show, Shoshana Zuboff. Um, and I don't think I'm writing against James Scott, but I'm writing against a lot of people who have read like one the German forestry chapter of seeing like a state and like maybe mm-hmm. nothing else by James Scott. Um, and are <laughs> since like, oh my gosh, like systems render things imperfectly and then reinscribe the imperfect version like back onto the subject. And like, I, I had that moment too, when I read the German forestry chapter of seeing like a state, but you know, and, and then I, you know, read some other stuff and I was like, hold on. So um, those are the sort of the two <laughs> characters that I'm writing against there. Um, by which I mean, I think that this is sort of a theory of datification that really does, I call it the legibility harm. And it's like the idea that you're taking a rich, complex, you know, human spirit and rendering it into this like flat facsimile of a human. And in that rendering, you are engaged in a wrong. Um, you are maybe even engaged in a deontological violation where you're treating it, you know, a, a, a moral end as a moral means. So that's hence dignitarian. Yeah, I think that's kind of like who I'm writing against. And, and, and the conception there really is kind of this sense of like, you know, you're taking full real humans and you're rendering them into these, this flat little system. You're taking people and you're turning them into numbers. And that's wrong. Um, you know, I think there are all kinds of, again, as a legal scholar, like legal conclusions or like legal responses that you would develop against that. Um, it's a more robust individualist response than, you know, my data is my corn that I take to the farmer's market, but it's still very individual. It's about like the legal rights that I have to be taken as an individual, a full human individual into every, um, interaction that I have, um, with Mm -hmm. various digital systems that are trying to interact with me. 
What I, what I liked when I was reading about your critiques, uh, your kind of like outlay and critique of the dignitarians is that like at first and even just kind of what you said, I was like, it's like, oh, no. Is Salome writing about me? <laughs> <'Cause>, <laughs> I too have once been a dignitarian, you know. Because <laughs> yeah. I have definitely made arguments, and I I think that they do hold up though as well. Like uh, you know, I have argued that data is a is, you know datafication is a form of violence because it it does do those things, right? It does mm-hmm. um, work to kind of. Uh, uh, crunch people into certain kinds of yeah ontological and and uh, um, existential uh, kind of uh, kind of ways right making them into numbers making them legible rendering them in this way um, that it does kind of inflict harm uh, in its form of uh, of of what the selfhood uh, of what a data subject selfhood is like but then you know. So I was reading that and I was like, like, I have made and I still hold some of these kind of like dignitarian critiques of datafication um, in this way. But then what I I, I liked about it and what kind of gave me a a sigh of relief um, was when you (laughs) you push this to like, what does it what does a truly dignitarian response look like? And what it does is it it, it is. so focused on, um, as you put it, these processes are wrong um, because they you know, manipulate people, invade and violate the sanctity of their inner beings and undermine their capacity to express and enact their free will, right? In other words, like the dignitarian response also has this like very simplistic understanding of of the self as this like ultimately malleable being as a uh, as somebody who is just ready to be manipulated um able to be kind of crunched and modified in these ways and and does so by focusing again very intently on the individual never using that critique as ammunition as grist to then push further and say, what does this mean within a system that does this? What does this mean in terms of, of these kind of large-scale questions of, of politics, of equity, of distribution? How is the fact that, like, you know, an insurer categorizes people um, in, in, the, in these types, right, has this kind of a, a very based or debased, rather, view of, of selfhood, um, and then, but then goes on to use that in a, in a profit making system or in, the, or in terms of extraction, in terms of exploitation, right? It never, it never, the dignitarians seemingly never go on to ask those larger political questions. They are f- solely focused in the realm of ethics and, and philosophy, right? Never in the realm of politics and economy. I mean, for the more philosophically inclined among the listeners of this podcast, I sometimes like pithily describe my project as like, I share a lot of the um, concerns with our existing technical systems with the dignitarians. Um, And part of why I think I can write with such specificity with that view is because a part of me still holds a lot of those views. Um, But I think, again, where this cashes out for me uh, as a legal scholar is like, and to get to the philosophically inflected statement that I'm interested in making is it's like, I'm interested in going from Kant to Hegel, you know, I'm interested in saying, you know, I'm, I don't want to like preserve the sanctity of the autonomous individual. I want to 
move towards digital social relations where we like mutually constitute one another to achieve mutual freedom. Mm. Um, And that's kind of where in terms of sort of, again, legal regimes where I kind of part ways um, with dignitarians. And I think partly it's because a lot of the thinking and writing in this sort of feels backwards looking to me, people who are saying we're in techno feudalism, we need to get into like Adam Smith. Um, And, you know, the sort of romantic humanists saying we need to get back to our true natures. But I am ultimately interested in a future oriented project, which is that, you know, I'm interested in 7 billion people attaining the material conditions they need to experience human flourishing on like a planet that's about to go into climate crisis. And like that will ultimately take data governance and that's going to take data infrastructures. And how do we develop those in a way that take into account the priorities of 7 billion people, not, you know, a handful of deranged um, VCs in California. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's kind of where I, you know, sort of part from the dignitarians. With the proprietarian and dignitarians, you know, both of them, because of the, the, I guess, the terrain in which they want to have the arguments about what we're going to do with data, introduce weird ways of thinking about how we should relate to each other instead of having, like you were talking about, mutual freedom or ensuring mutual freedom and, and flourishing from each other. It seems that they're intimately concerned with only legislating or only governing in very narrow arenas. Um, and I think one of the dimensions you talk about are we're thinking of it in vertical and, hor- and horizontal axes, you know, where you have the data relation um, between an individual subject and an individual data collector, and then matching that with a horizontal conception of data production related to data subjects, not data collectors, and then another one that shares or thinks about, okay, instead, what if uh, the relevant population features of the data subject or, or the subject here? And I was wondering if like, we could also dive into that because I think the proprietarians and the, and the dignitarians, as you talk about, like they can have or identify some like real problems that are going on right now, the, the ability and the of these large monopolies uh, and tech companies to have like one-sided exploitative relationships with individuals and populations, but get totally wrong the diagnosis of why this is happening and what the solution should be mm-hmm. and whether that solution has ever worked for any other sort of regime that we're interested in improving and, and shielding from exploitation. Yeah, now I want to jump in on that really quick as well. Mm-hmm. And, and just to say, you know, to put a fine point on this, the, the kind of failures of this dignitarian response. Cause I, I, I think it's worth being really clear because I think a lot of people would have, um, kind of a lot of listeners as well as, uh, host of this show would have a kind of, uh, implicitly at least a kind of dignitarian response, right? Because we're like, yeah, this is what data collection is doing to us, to me, to you. um, And isn't this wrong? Like, as you put it, right, quote, to dignitarians, these injustices present ontological and existential threats to personhood, and therefore are wrong on their own basis, regardless of how the resulting data may be used. And I think this gets exactly at the, the point that Ed just raised here about mm-hmm. understanding these like vertical and horizontal relations. In other words, understanding data not as 
um, something that merely sits within the realm of the individual or within the realm of selfhood, um, but but rather data as something in every in every way, right? Like technically, politically, economically, um, is a social relation. It's not an individual um, relation. It's not it's not about selfhood as such, but is about these relationships between data and what they they represent. It, it, it is this very social way. I mean, just like I, I don't need to rehash our our critiques of of Zuboff because we've we've spent uh, an entire like two hour long episode going through them. <laughs> um, friend of the show, friend of the show. We <laughs> the the dignitarian response and something that and Zuboff in particular, right? Like the response here is on one hand all data. Uh, all data collection, all datafication is wrong on its face, like end of story, um, which flattens out a lot of stuff, which is something that Zuboff loves to do, which is just to flatten out differences, um, which is what she does with like arguing that the, the problem with surveillance capitalism and these kinds of dignitarian critiques that she puts forward is the surveillance aspect, right? Rather than mm-hmm. what the true problem is, which is the capitalism aspect, right? It's not, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's not a question of like having a nicer, kinder capitalism, but rather, um, just with the proprietarian response, uh, response as well, the problem on its face is the social relations of capitalism. And therefore, we have to understand data as a social relation and understand our current um, kind of system of data as one that uh, reflects and replicates and reinforces capitalist social relations. And the yeah. epistemology. Yeah. Can't, can't forget about the epistemic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, forget, I'm, I'm, uh, epistemic yeah. harms and cri- epistemic crisis yes. and epistemic rights. Oh. I, I cannot yeah. believe, we haven't talked about it, but I cannot believe that the New York Times let <laughs> Shoshana Zuboff write a like 3,000 word op-ed where she said the word epistemic 36 times throughout that op-ed. I <laughs> well, I think it's very indicative, again, of what I call the legibility are. I mean, they... Mm-hmm. They're very concerned with this, like, rendering, right? Like, it, it's all, perhaps only an epistemic injustice to someone like Shoshana Zuboff, as opposed mm-hmm. to, like, I really think of data relations as, like, materializing social relations. So, like, to the, those social relations are unjust insofar as, like, a lot of the social relations of capitalism are now being rendered digitally because that's how we live uh, amongst one another. So that's a very different diagnosis of what's wrong than, you know, epistemic injustice uh, Mm -hmm. only. And, you know, I want to say, like, I get the impulse for dignitarians to look at the technical systems we have and think that they're very wrong because, you know, of course the, the logics and priorities running the systems are pretty alien to what, to what I'm talking about when I'm talking about like human flourishing for 7 billion people and they're frankly antithetical to human flourishing. So like, I get that, but the critiques need to be precise. And it's te- it's tempting to sort of accidentally fall into this like naturalistic rejection uh, of all social relations being rendered digitally. But um, again, I think the, the kind of shoring up this idea that I can be like my own little island free from, <laughs> free from interference or being messed with just is wrong. I mean, we are socially constituting one another all the mm-hmm. time. And what we should start thinking about are um, 
how we socially constitute one another and um, who has a say over the systems that socially constitute one another. And so, you know, again, I kind of want to reorient some of the concern from the dignitarian perspective to sort of really ask, okay, if what we see very clearly in the, in the digital economy is very frankly, this idea that we get like drafted into the project of mutual, you know, on the bad side, drafted into the project of mutual oppression or like drafted into the project of sort of like mutual creation <laughs> on the positive side, you know, how can we sort of start to play with those structures um, and kind of democratize them <laughs> and maybe pull them away from profit incentives towards human flourishing incentives rather than just kind of like rejecting the game entirely? Yeah, going off of what, uh, off of Ed's question, can you mm-hmm. lay out a little bit about the the differences between these vertical and horizontal relations. Sure. Yeah. So in the piece, and this is kind of responding both to kind of to legal scholars as well as like the general public. But what I try to make clear by talking about vertical data relations and horizontal data relations is that we really focus a lot on kind of the relationship between a data subject and a data producer. And this I call the vertical data relation. And so that's like when I type into Google search, like, Where's the closest convenience store where I can buy flaming hot Cheetos? <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> like data transfer from like me data subject to Google data collector is the vertical data relation. But by doing something like that, they're also developing kind of like population level in behavioral insights into the populations that I'm a member of. So I'm, as I said, I'm a woman, I'm a millennial, I'm a cat lover. And so now I'm kind of also kind of in relation with all of the other women, millennial, cat owner, whatever population categories Google puts me into when I kind of engage in that kind of data transfer. And now not only does Google know that Salome specifically is interested in finding, you know, Flamin' Hot Cheetos nearby her, um, but also that like other women and other millennials and other cat owners might be like interested in Flamin' Hot Cheetos. And so, you know, this sort of insight that I've rendered um, via the vertical data relation between me and Google also kind of puts me into a relationship with all of the other kind of population people that um, I've kind of now helped Google gain insight into. And this matters in the law, right? Because we focus a lot on the kind of distribution of coercive power is how we think of it between me and Google. So, you know, we can give me um, stronger rights against Google that they can only use this information about me a very specific way. Or we can give me, you know, they have to put a banner on the search bar so that they can tell me what they're going to do with my data and all of this. Like that's all kind of on that vertical relation. But we don't really think at all um, about how my actions kind of constitute these horizontal relations with other people that I'm in the population with. And that seems very innocuous in the example that I just gave, but it becomes a lot less innocuous in a lot of other kind of data collection settings. So in the piece, I talk about Amazon Ring. I also kind of talk about what's sort of a Clearview AI like gang database example where um, collecting information about one person's tattoo now also kind of gives people a lot of other information about people who might share that tattoo. Um, You know, one can think about this in terms of genetic information. So I have a contract with 23andMe, but what about all of the people who share genetic information with me? Where are they represented in that legal relation? Well, they're not really. Um, so that's kind of what the distinction is that I'm trying to get at um, with the vertical relations and the horizontal relations. 
You have some really great examples kind of laying out these horizontal relations. And and you say um, in the piece, right, that, quote, privacy risk is notoriously easy to undervalue at the point of exchange. Privacy risk associated with data isn't static, nor is privacy loss linear. It accumulates and grows over time based on the composition effects from multiple sources of data, varied downstream uses, and new applications. People tagging online photos of themselves and their friends in 2009, for example, could not have known that companies contracting with law enforcement in 2019 would use such information for facial recognition products. And this is exactly what you just got out, right? With like Clearview AI, there has also been some really great essays. There was a great essay by a a group of scholars um, in the latest issue of Logic Magazine looking at the genealogy of ImageNet um, and, Mm -hmm. and, and the ways that like individual people uploading and tagging photos of themselves on like Flickr and on Facebook and and so on. Unknowingly, we're creating this massive amount of data um, that then companies like Clearview AI, companies in, interested in creating um, artificial intelligence systems and training those algorithms would come in years decades later and scrape all that information and use it uh, for all of these like secondary and tertiary uses that we didn't imagine when we were individually uploading and tagging photos. And, and not only are they using it, but also using it in ways that have massive effects on strangers to us, right? On the very mm-hmm. like the structures and operations of policing in in terms of like facial recognition, um, the very kinds of technologies that we get and that are foisted upon us and foisted into the world, such as these artificial intelligence. The vertical relations focus so intently on these kinds of relationships between like me and Facebook when I upload this data or when Facebook collects data about my profile. But as I think you so brilliantly show by just throwing some social theory into the mix and throwing this kind of sociological social viewpoint into data, that the, the those relations extend horizontally, as you put it, so far out into time and space and application in ways that like we couldn't imagine the effects that my action uh, you know, years ago would directly contribute to some outcome uh, to some other group of people for some other purpose years later. Yeah. You know, one, one can make the argument that that's maybe true in any like economic production process and system. And, you know, if you're, I mean, we live in a society. Yeah. Yeah, You're like, yeah, that's the point. Yeah. (laughs) We are linked together through like the, through our relations, through products that we all make with our time. I I think it's just so stark to me with, with data production um, and with the digital economy, because it's so centrally the point of data collection. Like that's why companies collect data to begin with. Um, That's what makes it meaningful and valuable. The fact that what I put in isn't just isn't just about me. <laughs> it's exactly because of all of the interesting insights it has has to reveal about others like me. And you know, that's put to terrifying ends much of the time, but it actually reveals something, you know, really profoundly true about us, which is that we are we live in a society and we are social beings and you know we are our communities. Um, and it's like the fact that it's 
you can actually learn something reliably about other millennial women cat lovers on my behavior. Like, yeah, because I am that. And, you know, I, that's, that's kind of beautiful. <laughs> um, as a <laughs> I'm, social I'm, fact. <laughs> I'm doing, I'm doing my best. Profit opportunity. Uh, yeah. But also as a profit opportunity. I'm doing my yeah. best Adam Curtis voice here. You know, individualism <laughs> was an ideology that seemingly no individual was aware of. <laughs> yeah, you got you to do the bit where it's like, um, but then something changed in the 1970s. People stopped seeing each other as individuals. Yeah, tell me about it. It's a cold world out there. Sometimes I think I'm getting a little frost on myself. But, you know, again, like, this basic social fact like matters for the law that's supposedly governing all of this stuff because like that's just in fact how a lot of the harm happens mm-hmm. you know to say like oh you know the fact that you know the US military uses a popular muslim prayer app to get the location track of untold millions of muslims globally like to articulate that in our law as like that's creepy for me individually or i sh- they should have gotten my consent just doesn't seem to capture the social fact that's going on there or the way in which we might feel <laughs> upset to find this fact out um, at all. You know, it seems wholly inadequate um, to try to reduce it to that kind of legal harm. Yeah, maybe it's worth bouncing off that talking about before we get into some of your more normative recommendations for how to best govern uh, data as a social relation. Yeah, what is the dominant kind of legal regime for that that currently exists for governing the collection of data, privacy rights, and so on. Like you mentioned consent, right? So could, could you yeah. explain to us a little bit about what is this existing regime? And, and you know, we've talked a lot about how uh, many of the critiques have this kind of methodological individualism, um, but, but how is that translated into the existing law? So... Privacy law is pretty international because um, different countries and different places do it differently. In the U.S., we have predominantly what we call a consumer protection approach to data governance and privacy, and it's predominantly kind of what we call a notice and choice framework. So what that means is that um, we think of the the terms and conditions that govern digital data production in the U.S. under U.S. law um, are just that, terms and conditions. It's in the privacy policies and terms on websites that nobody reads. And basically, the rule is that you have to be provided notice of what companies are going to do, which is notoriously very vague. They're like, we will collect information about you and use it. That's notice. And consent, which is you clicking, I agree. Now that's a contract. That's notice and consent. The FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, um, makes sure that these companies are not engaged in what are called unfair and deceptive acts and practices in these contracts that they sign with you. Um, So occasionally, if it's like, your notice was too vague, or you said you are only going to use it to improve your services, and then you like also sold some of it, so like you lied in your contract, then the FTC will ding tech companies on that. And then we also have a few sector-specific laws, most of which are just doing beefed-up versions of notice and choice. There are notable state laws in, in, in the U.S. They give you maybe a little bit extra rights, but a lot of this, again, is about companies being required to tell consumers what they're up to, and give consumers an option to opt out of what they're up to. Even then, they don't always get an option to opt out. They sometimes get an option to be like, told what's up, and like that's where the law ends. So that's basically it. Um, In the US, there are like some 
on the margins differences there. Europe gets a lot closer to what I'm actually referring to in the paper as a dignitarian response or dignitarian conception. Mm-hmm. So there, um, your privacy rights and your rights to your data are a fundamental rights. They're in the European Charter. Um, the General Data Protection Regulation requires a bunch of very robust kind of consent rights. You have to engage in data minimization. There are all sorts of affirmative data processing standards that data collectors have to engage in that are sort of like best practices for how they handle and steward information. Again, in the sort of dignitarian conception, people have inalienable rights to how their information is used. So it can't be used against you sort of downstream in certain kind of defined ways in Europe. The U.S., No U.S. privacy scholar would say that notice and choice is working or is good. Everyone agrees that it's bad. (laughs) I'm not novel in making those claims. (laughs) Nothing I'm saying there is novel. I think in the piece I say much ink has been spilled on this, Mm -hmm. how bad it is. Like, that's true. No one one who looks at this thinks it's good. The problem in the U.S. is that, like, and, and we have a lot of, um, you know, at the state level, at the federal level, there's a lot of energy, I think, a- around legal reform. So I'll get calls from states um, or kind of different groups around the country who are saying, like, we want to write a big bill like California's and we're going to try to, like, fix privacy in Washington or fix privacy in Virginia or fix privacy, you know, wherever. And then you see that actively around state legislatures. But again, kind of the the problem is that a lot of it is just like, we just really need to beef up the consent. The consent can't be fake. It needs to be real, which again is like getting at the vertical relations. So Google really, they got to really get my consent, you know, or like you sign up for Amazon Ring. Amazon Ring has to really, you know, you got to give a meaningful consent to surveil your front porch. All the front porches in your neighborhood at the same time. And all the front porches in your neighborhood. It's like, okay, yeah, I mean, that is getting at, something which is like you know yeah i mean it is getting at the consent aspect or like okay even if you give them the dignitarian response which is to say like and they can't use it uh against you to make like an adverse decision about you um using your information again okay that helps me (laughs) but what about all the people that see my ring what about you know the way that my ring is like materializing highly racialized you know suburban relationships and like violence Mm -hmm. we're not getting at any of that in any of the legal proposals that um are going on (laughs) across the country so that's kind of the intervention i'm trying to make (laughs) Can I ask you this the simple yet hard question of why? <laughs> like why is it that everyone agrees that this is that this is shit and that everyone agrees that it has all of these, you know, even to use their language, right? Externalities that aren't being internalized by it. Um like yeah. Why? Why why does that why does that 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 system that everyone agrees is problematic continue to persist and all of the solutions to it um, are also just like, we need to do what we're already doing, which everyone agrees is bad, but just do it more and better. (laughs) 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 Well, yeah, I mean, I think because actually people's diagnosis of why it's bad are well, part of what I'm doing with this paper is trying to like, just clarify, like just get people to be specific because when you're talking about like highly extractive data, highly extractive data extraction happening under like essentially a laissez-faire legal regime, there's like the field is wide open to explain. There's like you know you can point to like a hundred potential reasons why this is bad, <laughs> and some people some people point to 
the contract isn't specific enough. And some people point to, you know, we haven't given people robust enough individual rights over their data. Um, and, I, you know, I'm, I'm pointing to something very different. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that everyone can agree the current system is broken. But to be quite honest, we've, we've asked so little of these companies um, as a legal community that there's a lot you could point to as potentially breaking down. So, you know, I, I think that there might be plenty of scholars who do think that we just need to let consumers be more informed about the contracts that they're signing. And they might genuinely believe that. I mean, I don't. So that's not the solution I propose. Um, but, you know, I, I think that um, that's part of the answer of why. You know, I think that we have, we've kind of been in the consumer kind of mindset and approach in this country in a uh, for a long time. And so it's really hard to start thinking outside of that um, when that's the template. You know, if you're a 25 year old legislative staffer, you just grab the template, right? And you mm -hmm. kind of fiddle with that a little bit um, to bring to your committee. And, you know, I, I think that part of what I'm interested in, in doing is like expanding our set of templates a little bit about, beyond just what we have, which everyone knows is bad, but we just haven't spent that much time thinking imaginatively of alternatives. I'm going to throw it over to Ed here um, because I, the, this kind of focus on consumer protections has also in a lot of ways poisoned the well of one of Ed's bugbears, which is antitrust. Like, yeah. especially when we look at like antitrust against Amazon, for example. And I think this is like, you know, the work of someone like Lena Khan has done a lot to try to, to you know, undermine this approach that antitrust is only an issue um, when it comes to like consumer protection, right? Like it, it subordinates um, antitrust law to consumer protection regulation. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm going to throw it over to Ed here to, to speak on that a little bit. You know, you have you have proposals and normative proposals for how to achieve democratic data governance and some of these adherents, mainly the dignitarians, would try to say, well, what if instead of creating a new regime, we ensured we had ro more robust ways of shaking down data collectors or data producers, right? What if we had more interventions in managing the size of them or a more robust antitrust law, or if we had more infrastructure for managing data collection at larger scales, you know, and so as you've like done this work and looked at the limits of their re reforms and proposals, is it the case that to go beyond the dignitarians and also the prop uh, propertarians, we have to construct novel new infrastructures, new methodologies, new ways of engaging with data? Or is it that some of the tools they do propose can be reoriented in another direction and it's just that these people kind of have a limited uh, imagination and a wrongheaded diagnosis of what's going on here? Yeah, I mean, I think it might be a bit of both. So, you know, I think there are a lot of ways to start getting the annoying response. It's both. <laughs> well, you're right. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. They are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, um, I, I tend to think of it as like, if I think of it as like the proprietarian, the dignitarian, and the democratic, I think of them as sort of like ways of evaluating potentially the same proposal. So like, let's take um, what I think of as like a very modest ask is that every privacy bill going forward needs to have a direct right of action. And it needs to, if at all possible, in the particularities of that law, make it clear that you can't subject the consumers that you sign on to that are like governed by this regime. They have to have a 
private right of action and you can't force them into arbitration clauses. Okay. So what would a propertarian say about that? I don't know. A dignitarian <laughs> would be in favor of it. So <laughs> would I under a democratic regime. Um, because now we're allowing for class actions. We're actually building a baseline there for plaintiffs to band together as a class and potentially try to bring new theories of harm or litigate under new strategies. It vastly opens up our capacity to enforce the existing laws that we already have if we give the people a direct right, private right of action and we don't force them into arbitration. Um, and we can sort of start to uh, build meaning, one, potentially fairly legalistic, but like notable form of counterpower against um, all of these tech companies. Right now, almost any privacy bill... Uh, there's maybe one or two that are in the works that are trying, but many of them don't include a private right of action. That's crazy to me. That would be good under a democratic conception. It would also probably be good under a dignitarian one. You know, I don't think of them as potentially always mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I think there are other people who have really looked at proposals to sort of beef up the FTC governance of information to sort of make it far more substantive and robust. And some of that does kind of take on a flavor of like democratic governance. I think there are like meaningful ways in which the projects aren't mutually exclusive. There are meaningful ways in which, you know, taking seriously kind of this population level project um, can can happen inside of the structures that we have. I think it just also means that we start to look at um, areas that have traditionally kind of lain outside the purview of data governance scholars. So I unsurprisingly am very interested in labor law <laughs> and things like National Labor Relations Act, the National Labor Relations Board, things like that, models like that, potential legal agencies that look like that. Um, I'm really interested in thinking about how cities can, you know, if any gig company is going to operate in the city, they have to make that all of the information that they collect about those workers available to those workers in the form of like a worker cooperatively managed information trust or information sort of collective. So that has to sort of just technically sit in between the technology and the worker. And like all of that information has to be available to the workers as a condition of operating in the city of like Boston, let's say. That's just the kind of thing that like I think of as squarely within the realm of like a democratic data governance proposal, but isn't the type of thing that we typically think of as like a privacy bill. And, and that's what I'm sort of interested in opening up as like, Data governance scholars should think of stuff like that. <laughs> you know, over the past year or almost two years, it's been also interesting to learn more about other attempts to to expand, for example, antitrust, right? There have been attempts uh, by legal scholars to expand antitrust to also be looking at labor markets, you know, specifically with the gig economy, right? And that they are engaged in a, ma a massive price fixing conspiracy if their workers are independent contractors and if they're not then there's still a monopoly on the you know, on the market side and similarly this like approach of trying to expand data governance into uh, into new arenas that it might not otherwise be or privacy as an, as the example you just gave i think is a really interesting one do you see pushback from uh, other groups or people who are reifying the status quo um, to attempts to expand privacy beyond it. I know that with like antitrust and attempts to expand antitrust into labor law a lot uh, or into, you know, rectifying social harms, the idea has been like a lot of the critiques are like, oh, well, 
uh, antitrust is specifically about market problems. It's not. It should not be used to to redress harms that are done in a larger society. That's what for, you know. We can have other policies for that. We can have other avenues for that. But antitrust should be solely concerned with if there's an undue concentration of power. And similarly, do you anticipate from proprietarians, dictatorians, other groups? saying the democratic alternative may be going too far in, in this domain and, or in some other domain. And in fact, if we really want to get this right, we have to figure out a smart balance between privatizing everything and, and stopping the enclosure, I guess. Yeah. Um, I guess uh, pri- privacy law has both the, the, the blessing and the curse of, um, you know, the neo-Brandeisians, Lena Khan and, and the other neo-Brandeisians in antitrust are really, they're coming up against like a very hegemonic way of thinking about antitrust in the consumer welfare standard and the like hyper economization of, of antitrust legal thinking that has presided over an extremely successful relationship with like corporate America. Um, mm-hmm. Privacy scholars are just like, have just been like rendered wholly ineffectual by the economic powers that be. So in a way, like, I don't, ha- I don't think I'm facing as much of a like fight inside of my own academic community um, because they never were like as explicitly like the successful handmaids of capital that like antitrust law was. We just sort of were like ineffectual. Um, so, um, which puts me in a better relationship in terms of like, I don't have to like, there are no like Goliaths that I must slay inside of my own academic community um we just more (laughs) have to like render with our own total ineffectualness my bid there is like you know warren brandeis had a wonderful vision of antitrust he would also gave birth to u.s privacy with this very influential law review and he was dealing with like governing interpersonal relations we are now actually governing like under informational capitalism. <laughs> Information production is like a core form of economic production. So we have to grow up as, as a legal community. We're no longer just like governing interpersonal relations. We're like governing modes of economic production. And so we got to step up. <laughs> but luckily that doesn't require me to like engage in fights with moneyed interests the way that um, antitrust scholars have to have to take them on. <laughs> There's so much there, which is just great and worth kind of like really digging into. But I think to kind of cut to the quick of it, right? I want to talk more about your conception of data as a democratic medium, as you put it, and and therefore what that means Mm -hmm. for doing um, democratic governance of data. And, And one of the things that I really, that really spoke to me when reading your piece um, and that I haven't really seen like anyone else really talk about and at least and, and definitely not in as explicit of a way as you do um, is this idea data as a dim as you put it in the in the essay data as a democratic medium um, versus a kind of individual medium which is the the predominant way of thinking about it provides a theory of data governance from which to defend forms of socially beneficial data production that individualist accounts may foreclose I really like that um, in part because uh, like socially beneficial production is something that we've talked a lot about on TMK and it's something that we are very much for um, 
um, in terms of thinking about what does socially beneficial production look like. When we've talked about it, it's predominantly in the context of the Lucas plan, which was itself in the context of kind of industrial capitalism and industrialization. Now, I, I, I like this because it starts to update it for informational capitalism and in terms of information production and distribution um, and ownership of that kind of means of information. In particular, right, like, as, as you put it as well, you know, this kind of proposal departs from the really individualistic approaches of the proprietarians and of the dignitarians, um, as you put it, quote, that they do not extend in the, the, these, the proposals you advocate for in the terms of a democratic governance do not extend individual rights to data subjects as a way to break open the walled gardens of corporate held consumer data, right? Like we're running up in the data servers. I'm doing a snatch and grab. I'm like, that's my data. That's my data. You don't have a right to have that, um, which I think is how the proprietarian response essentially boils down to, right? Where it's like, mm -hmm. no, no, no. All of that data you've got in your corporate servers, I need to have that in my own private server um, in, a, in a in a room in my house. And and I'm gonna I'm gonna have armed security on that private server and I'm keeping you out unless that we meet in the in the bizarre market of exchange and come to mutually agreeable terms about how you can access and use that data. Right. Like that's the proprietarian response. Um, but instead, your response instead conceives of, of, of this kind of citizen data, right, as a, as a public resource or as a form of infrastructure to be managed via public governance and in furtherance of public goals. Here, I'm, I'm quoting, I'm quoting your essay back at you. <laughs> but And what I like about that as well is that you also kind of you go up against the dignitarian response, right, which says, Essentially, the dignitarian response is is not, I need to have my own private server of, of data about me, but rather like all of this data, no matter what, should not exist. I'm running up in the servers and, and I'm, I'm, dis I'm running up in the corporate server farm and I'm disconnecting it. I'm unplugging all of them. And I'm saying, I'm, I'm, I'm setting all this information free. I'm abolishing it from the very existence of, of the world. Now, I think that, the, again, I think a lot of people, us included, would say, yeah, there, there's a role for that, right? Like, like there's a role for that kind of Luddite approach that says we've got to dismantle the servers, we got to burn it all down, we got to, you know, we've got to abolish the data assets from from the world. But what I like in particular about your approach is that you also say, yeah, we need to do that to to some forms of data, and and but in but in particular, focusing on the conditions that it's collected and the ends that it's perp that it's put forward, mm -hmm. rather than the dignitarians, which, as you say, quote, advance legal responses to citizen data um, as a subject of potential violation. Democratic data um, also approaches it as a potential resource for citizen empowerment. So it, it, it starts to make this shift away from all data. Um, all datafication is a violation and instead start asking the question of what kinds of data collection, what kinds of infra data infrastructure could actually be put towards purposes of, of, of citizen empowerment and socially beneficial uses. 
that was my kind of like in a nutshell description of your theory. But could you could you take us a little bit deeper into what you mean by democratic data governance and these kind of socially beneficial uses and empowerment? Mm -hmm. What might that look Mm -hmm. like? Yeah, no, that was a really nice synthesis, better than when people, I should just said port Jathan in every time people ask me to talk about this <laughs> proposal. Um, I mean, what I always ta- what I always say is like, I'm not interested in abolishing data production. I'm interested in like, totally altering the distribution of data production that we have. So I don't know if you guys remember, like in math class, the moment when you like, on your little electronic calculator, you like see a little graph and it looks like a particular shape and then you zoom out and the graph looks like it has a totally different shape. I think right now, if you zoom in at the kind of information collection that's happening, you would look at the little picture on your screen and go like, yeah, I hate that. I don't want any of that. Abolish that, (laughs) which is true. That's a correct response to like data extraction under informational capitalism. But if you zoom out, there are plenty of questions that we're not asking that I would love to have some data infrastructure on. My, so my, my example, like my less political example that I use is like, we measure national water consumption in this country once every 10 years. I'm in the US. That seems weird. If we're heading into a climate crisis, I would like to know where the water is going. Mm. <laughs> For example, I would like to know a lot more about supply chain management from like the top companies. I want to know where financial flows are going. We're not asking any of those questions. We don't have insight into those data flows. You know, I think we have a profoundly asymmetrical amount of privacy that is afforded corporate persons as opposed to natural persons. I want to know a lot more about corporate persons in this in this country. I want to know where their money is coming from and what is happening inside of all of those shell companies they have buying up real estate around Manhattan. So, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, again, if, I'm if interested I can just in jump like, in on that real quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It reminds sure. me of, of of one of Ed's tweets from from like a, a couple like yesterday or the day before where Ed, what were you saying like, you know, we oh, yeah, need to want- have monitoring of every billionaire (laughs) yeah if you have a billion dollars you should be like everything you do say type and anything done for you by a proxy in your name should i should know what it is happening i should be able to go on like channel six oh bezos is like in his lair deciding how he's gonna destroy (laughs) some some uh, community's economy but also just like as you as you're saying here you know uh one of my favorite uh, fictional things that happened was you know Mr. Robot's attempt to destroy debt by having a consol- by having an attack on a consolidated holder of debt and in the real world even if you could do that we wouldn't be able to do that yeah. because we don't know who holds the debt we don't know where they hold the debt in terms of digital physical locations we don't know where the paper mm-hmm. records are we also don't know if that debt was then handed off to some other secondary holder Giannis Varoufakis talks about how you could do it, theoretically you could organize a strike in your neighborhood to collapse some financial entities um, holdings in it because they own the future revenues and not the actual revenues in some form of like bond or speculative asset but you can't even like organize people in the community to do that because you don't know whose uh, revenue payments are being paid into what asset owned by what company right exactly. nothing we don't know anything I mean yeah. if you just had those sorts of data float yeah it's like those data flows. I want those data flows. Yeah, I'm interested in getting those data I would flows. Like them. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I mean, in, in financial regulation, we have this concept of a systemically significant financial institution. You know, yeah. Oh, we've talked about that what with BlackRock and Aladdin. Yeah. yeah. 
you know, systemically significant data institutions and or data persons like Jeff Bezos. If you're like above a certain mark cap, you're systemically significant, you're subject to additional, you know, disclosure requirements right. <laughs> and like robustness, you know? Um, so yeah, I kind of think of it as like that little calculator screen, like zooming out, like what's inside the box right now, what we see right now, the kinds of data extraction we're exposed to. Yeah. A lot less of that should be happening under any normative evaluation of like democratic data. The socially beneficial data production I'm talking about is like, there are certain things and like certain reasons for which we probably need to be collecting more information. And I want a theory of data extraction, like what makes it wrongful, that retains the possibility of that. I think mm-hmm. for me, like when I'm writing against the dignitarian and the propertarians, I want to retain the idea that we can actually ask more of certain institutions, very powerful institutions, legal institutions, and not inadvertently end up creating a legal theory that they could rest on to foreclose any of that, you know, sort of, again, strategically saying like, this is just like asking this individual under the California Consumer Protection Act to like engage in this thing. And you can't ask that of BlackRock. (laughs) You can't ask that of consolidated future revenue holdings company that we're trying to organize against. So yeah, that's kind of what I have in mind when I talk about like, socially beneficial data production in part. Yeah, probably a lot in there, but yeah. (laughs) No, no, I mean, uh, there's a lot of great stuff there for sure. Just to re-emphasize the point uh, that we've we've talked about in our premium episode on BlackRock and Aladdin, where like the disclosures of how much how many assets that sit on the Aladdin platform haven't been updated since like 2017 because the number is too big. Right? <laughs> it's <Yeah>. like not, <laughs> not too big in the sense that they don't know, but too big in the sense that like it's a public relations nightmare if they let us know <laughs> how much how big it is. And I, I like that you you say in the piece that um, data production's commodification problem is not simply that of unjust legibility, but the institutional forms that adjudicate between permissible and impermissible data production. And what you're really talking about here is an inversion of legibility right it's like yeah there's a problem that like all of us are are like ultra legible to all of these um all these known and unknown entities that are taking part in the data um, economy and the means of data production and informational capitalism like we are all legible in a way that uh these corporate persons um these billionaires that exist in some kind of like state of, of, of quasi sovereignty um, by by just simply the fact that they like own so much capital are not subject to any of that legibility, right? So in a way, it's like we to combine what you're arguing and what Ed, uh, Ed has put forward, right? Like, we need to completely uh, and cleanly invert the legibility, right? Where it's like, I don't want to be that legible, but also these institutions and these billionaires need to be that legible. Because in a way, like, you know, if we take like the dignitarian response or like Zuboff's response, right? Like um, it forecloses all of that, right? Like the problem is legibility bar none. And so it's like, you know, it, it, it's like the arguments uh, against like the stimulus checks, right? Where it's like, well, I don't, I, you know, uh, if you make above a certain threshold, then, then they shouldn't get free education or, or a stimulus. And, and, you know, we're, we're sending out all these stimulus checks or we're canceling tuition for all these rich people. Um, and, and there, you know, so it takes this like all or nothing 
point of view, um, which seems to be like Zuboff is doing that in terms of informational capitalism and data, right? That it's an all or nothing, either everything is legible, um, which is her conception of the way that things work, which as we've just said, is not the way things work. Um, And her response is therefore nothing needs to be legible whatsoever. It's better to turn off all the lights and to make us all uh, just stumbling around in the dark um, versus having any kind of legibility. And that, and perversely, what that ends up doing um, is it just creates a system and it creates infrastructure that will only benefit those same people yeah. at the top, right? And the same with yeah. the proprietarian viewpoints, right? If you make all data into a market exchange, we have hundreds of years of experience and examples and empirics showing who does that really benefit? It benefits people at the top of the market, right? Like it does nothing to account for the asymmetries, which I love about your proposal is that it's not only accounting for those asymmetries and saying this is a problem, but it's arguing force that we need to invert those asymmetries. Yeah. Sooner or later, the people in this country are going to realize the government does not give a fuck about them. Government doesn't care about you or your children or your rights or your welfare or your safety. It simply doesn't give a fuck about you. It's interested in its own power. That's the only thing, keeping it and expanding it wherever possible. Personally, when it comes to rights, I think one of two things is true. I think either we have unlimited rights or we have no rights at all. I think like the the laws that I like the most that like all come from reaction to the 1930s, <laughs> um, you know, at their best kind of understand very explicitly that what legal regimes do is they like distribute this power relationship between actors. Mm-hmm. Robert Hale talks about it as like the distribution of coercive power we have over one another. That's what law does. You know, I, I think again, like I'm not interested in in like abolishing all legibility, I'm interested in like exactly reversing kind of (laughs) the more power you have in society, the more legibility you should be subject to. The -hmm. less power you have in society, the less legibility you should be in subject to. So, you know, again, like sort of distributing that coercive power in relation to how much power, you know, to sort of balance those power imbalances out. And again, if we focus on data as a social relation, we can understand that Some of the social relations we're in are relations of domination. Okay, (laughs) now we know how we should distribute the relative course of power in that relation to sort of try to address that domination. Others are neutral. Others are sort of operating differently. It makes no sense to me to sort of treat all of these um, analogously or the same, which is, again, not, not what I think good faith people are doing when they look at that zoomed in picture. They say, we should abolish all data collection. We should abolish all data extraction. There are all of these sort of other power relationships that we just completely sort of foreclose. Another kind of example, that's kind of the major negative case, I guess, of socially beneficial data production. The other sort of thing that I'm writing with the, that's in the backdrop for me is that I think if, you know, you like me think that we're currently allocating far too, access to far too many things by the via the private market, and we should maybe allocate some more of those things, like not using the private market, like healthcare, for example, or housing. Um, in order to retrieve those things from market governance, that's going to take public data infrastructure. <laughs> how do we like set up our house? How do we set up housing allocation? How do we like manage a universal healthcare system? That's going to require rendering people legible to that to that system. In our legal theories of what makes data infrastructures wrong, we have to be able to distinguish between like a universal healthcare system and Google. 
And a pure legibility theory doesn't do that for us. And if you in fact think that there's something unjust about allocating healthcare on a private market for a profit motive, you sort of have to come up with a theory of data infrastructure that allows us to retrieve those things from private market governance. And so that's kind of the other major thing I'm, I'm writing against. Right. Making it legible for people's healthcare, not for their faces. It's like one, one example. Yeah. Yeah, or not not for profit, just like yeah. to get people healthcare. Yeah. You know? yeah. It, 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 yeah, it reminds me of the meme that goes around where it's like to every every policy proposal or whatever that is like we're we're doing this thing that is only going to on the surface look really good but not actually address any kind of uh, systemic problems in society. It's just that meme of just the guy that's just I just want healthcare, please. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Or I just want the I don't, checks. I, I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't just want this check. I don't just want this. Uh, this like surface level representation. It's like I. I, I just want healthcare. I just want some basic redistribution of of, yeah. of goods and services, which will require public data infrastructures, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't want people to be like. I don't want the government to have my bank account. It's like no, for them to do the direct payments on time. We're going to need to give them the bank account information. I don't want them to use it for anything else. I want it very narrowly defined. I want purpose limitations. I want confidentiality requirements. But, uh, you know, I want the check in my bank account. That would be nice. Yeah, I mean, this 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 opens up a whole other can of worms that we 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 will not get into here. But but I promise at some point in the future we will get into, which is uh, my my bugbear about how the IRS has been perverted as an enforcement agency uh, because. Yeah. The, the IRS has so much radical potential in it. If only it were to do the exact things that Salome is arguing, which is like invert the legibility, right? Like, like the IRS does not have the, the time or resources uh, to do like audits of, of billionaires or big corporations, right? So instead, it, it only goes for the low hanging fruit um, and harasses like individual, like low net worth individuals, right? It never goes after the high net worth individuals. And and that's because it's it's difficult to do that without having um, the time or resources or, or legal uh, kind of bite in the agency to do that. And so we all rightfully hate the IRS because it's used as a cudgel against um, the vast majority of people not being used for what it ought to be used for, which is as essentially a legibility and auditing agency for the powerful people and institutions in society, right? Like we need to go up in there and, and grab those tax dollars <laughs> from from the people that have spent like from, from Leon Black, who's paid, you know, Epstein $150 million to, say, to supposedly save himself $2 billion in taxes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's that. Those are the people um, that, if we were to invert the legibility and have the data uh, and the the infrastructure and institutions necessary to do that, um, that you know, that would be a socially beneficial use of data infrastructure. Yeah, absolutely. I think this has just been such a, a fantastic and 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 wonderful conversation, Salome. Um, and I think. We'll bring it to a close there. And I just want to thank you so much for your work and for coming on to talk with us about it. Can you tell people, I mean, we'll throw a link to your essay in the mm -hmm. episode description. And we'll also throw a link to, you had an essay in the in Phenomenal World, 
which does mm-hmm. a really great job of mm-hmm. clearly laying out your arguments without needing to go through a law review, which I, which everyone should go through. Every the law review article is really clear and totally worth going through. But the phenomenal world essay gives like the perfect uh, encapsulation of of your points, and so we'll throw all of that in the episode mm-hmm. description. Do you have anything else to plug? Where can people find you? Where can people find your work? Yeah, um, nothing else immediately to plug. I mean, I have a personal website and I can send you a link to that, which I like actually keep relatively updated. Yeah, other than that, no, I mean, just continuing to be a legal scholar in New York. I'm going to be starting a fellowship at Columbia in the summer. So if you ever find yourself uptown and want to talk about data governance, look me up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, nothing else. Nothing. I have unfortunately no book project or, you know, personal um, marketing pitch here to, to offer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, what, what, that is the way to live your life. <laughs> you, don't, you don't need to go from, from, uh, plug to plug, but we'll also throw a link to your Twitter account, uh, in, in yeah, the sure. episode notes as well. Yeah, no, we'll uh, make you legible. We got you. We yeah. Yeah. We're legible. making you legible <laughs> in all the right ways, in all the right ways. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, great. Thanks. Well, thank you so much. It was a great time chatting with you all. Yeah, it was great. So thanks, everybody, for listening. You can find us later in the week in the in the premium feed, which you can get on patreon.com slash this machine kills, where we'll be. Yeah, Ed and I'll be riffing on so much more related to data governance. Uh, Yeah, thanks for listening. And we'll see y'all later.
This machine kills. kills.